If you would like to share that video, that video is on our Facebook page. You can go to that video, you can click share, and you can share it on your Facebook page or uh, your social media account with your friends to encourage them to come and to worship with us uh, on Sunday night. Did you catch Emmanuel when he started? He said, howdy. Did you catch that? That was for the Texans. And then he threw in namaste. So anyway, but uh, we're looking forward to having that great time together. Well, tonight we are going to continue our series on questions every Christian should know how to answer. And before we get into the, the real subject matter tonight, and the real subject matter of tonight is going to be who is Jesus? So we're going to get to that in just a moment. I was mentioning it to somebody in the hallway, and uh, they were going to choir practice or some other activity to one of our children's ministry activities. And did you know, by the way, on Wednesday nights, we have activities all over this place, uh, from children to students to choir to orchestra. There's just a lot going on all over the building. Uh, but I mentioned it to somebody in the hallway, and they said, well, I can tell everybody who Jesus is. And so I invited them to come and take my place, and they respectfully declined. Uh, so you're left with me tonight. But we're going to try to answer that question based on a, a really uh, familiar passage of Scripture, one that should be familiar. And if you want to turn to it, you can be ahead of the curve. Turn to Colossians 1 and just keep your Bible open in Colossians 1. But before we jump into that, I want to talk with you about can I really know that Christianity is true? Uh, because all of these subjects that we've been talking about on Wednesday nights, whether it be, is evolution true? What about the problem of evil? How do I know that there is a God? Can I trust my Bible? What about heaven or what about hell? And John did a tremendous job with that last week. We've been talking about all of those subjects, but the real subject that is on top of all of these subjects and under which all these other subjects uh, begin to come to light is the question of, can I know that Christianity is true? Can I really believe? Is there any way to know that Christianity is different than every other world religion? Somebody has uh, probably heard in the room, uh, or if you're listening online, you've probably heard somebody say that ultimately all religions lead to the same place. Uh, you might go different directions, but they all lead to the same place. You may have heard the illustration uh, there was a uh, preacher he went to, to uh, in the days back when we used to mail everything with a stamp. Some of us still do that, but it's becoming less and less common. But he was going to the post office, and he was mailing some letters, and he found one of the people in town who came up to him and uh, began a conversation, and the pastor began to share the gospel with this, uh, this gentleman who lived in this town. And the gentleman was saying to him, you know, I know you're sharing the gospel, but I believe that all religions ultimately lead to the same place. We just go in different directions. And the gentleman said to the pastor, he said, you know, I'll give you an example. You came to the post office today, and you probably came from the church, which means you came down Main Street and took a ride on Elm Street, and you arrived here at the post office. He said, well, I was at my workplace, and I was on 3rd Street, went to 4th Avenue, and turned left on 2nd Street, and I, and I arrived at the post office. And then he looked around, and he said, I bet that lady, she came from another direction, and yet she arrived at the post office. He said, we all came different directions, but we all arrived at the post office. And 
you know, you would think the pastor would be stumped, but he looked at this man and he said, you know, that's fantastic. But he said, when I die, I don't want to go to the post office. <laughs> and so what is it about Christianity that makes Christianity different than every other world religion? And we're going to dive into that. But just to give you a little background, how we live in such a real world. This last week while you were here, Carmen and I were in beautiful Colorado looking at the aspens turn yellow and neon colors, and it was about 50 degrees and 40 degrees, and so we sent that cooler weather down on our way back home on Saturday. We came home Saturday morning. I was sitting on the airplane Saturday morning uh, trying to keep up with the football scores on my phone, uh, minding my own business, and these two gentlemen came and sat next to me. And it's always uh, the occasion that when you don't want to visit with somebody, somebody wants to visit with you. And so, but I had my headphones on and I was listening to music and I took them off. And as soon as I did, that guy was ready and he pounced on me and put his hand out and he introduced himself and he said, my name is Kevin. And he said, I just want to tell you right now, so we get this clear, I am drunk. How about that? He said, I've come from Boise, Idaho. I'm on my way to the Dallas Cowboys game. Go Cowboys. And he said it quite loud. And he said, uh, I started drinking early this morning. I'm going to continue drinking on this airplane. He said, I am drunk. And I'm like, well, I am Mark. Nice to meet you. And we had this conversation. And uh, Carmen had her headphones on trying to pretend it wasn't happening, and old Kevin got louder and louder and louder so that everybody could hear the conversation. Uh, and so I was trying to, you know, how do you talk to a drunk man about the gospel? And I thought, this is probably not going to go anywhere, so I think I'll steer clear. He'll not remember what I said in the morning. And he looked over at me, and he asked me the question, and I've shared this with you before. He said, what do you do for a living, if you don't mind me asking? And uh, to be honest, I wanted to say I sell insurance. I, uh, I you know, uh, I, I, I did not want to tell him what I did. But, you know, I had to. And so I said, well, I'm a pastor. Well, he goes, you're a preacher? And he said it that loud. And I mean, everybody could hear. And he said, I'm sitting next to a preacher, you know, and he kept saying it. And he said, I'm sitting next to a man of God, and he, he just wouldn't let it rest, and I'm just slouching under the seat. And, uh, and, you know, I will not repeat the conversation that he had. He said to me, he said, now I want you to know that I am a Christian. And, uh, and then he said, I am a certain type of Christian, and I cannot explain to you in this setting exactly the type of Christian that he described himself as being. He used a very colorful description of himself. Uh, and he repeated that colorful description about 14 times. And he looked at me and he said, I know that I, I'm talking to a man of God, but I just have to be honest with you. Uh, so we had a friendly conversation for one hour and 40 minutes. From the moment the wheels went up till the wheels went down on that airplane. And it was quite a conversation. So I want you to understand and to know that I live in the real world too. I'm not isolated and not insulated uh, from that reality. I told him, I said, Kevin, has it ever occurred to you that perhaps the Lord put me on this airplane to sit next to you for you to get some sense about you and think about your life in a sober way? Uh, I don't know that he could have 
thought about his life in a sober way, considering the condition he was in in the two bottles of vodka that he drank straight up on the plane. So uh, anyway, it was quite interesting. I'm just glad nobody lit a match or that whole plane would have exploded by the smell that was coming from him. But anyway, uh, and I felt sorry for the people that were sitting next to Kevin at the Dallas Cowboy Packers game because I'm sure Kevin partied from the moment he landed until the game and then thereafter. So it was quite a conversation. But the conversation revolved around Christianity. What about Christianity? And inevitably, as Christians, we're going to come to this kind of conversation inevitably, if it's important to us, if it means anything to us, if it is of any value to us, and of course it is, the Apostle Paul told the Colossian church, he said, when Christ who is your life appears, you will be with him in glory. So Jesus is our life, and our faith is our life, and our Christianity is our life. So what about our Christianity? Can we really know that it is true? Now, over the course of our time together, we have discussed this idea or this worldview called agnosticism. And agnosticism, and there's a definition that is on the screen, can be defined as a person who believes that nothing is known or can be known of the existence or nature of God or of anything beyond material phenomena, a person who claims neither faith nor disbelief in God. So an agnostic is a person who says, I do not really have faith in God, and I do not have a disbelief that God exists. This is a person who believes that there is nothing that one can know for certain. And I suppose that the majority of people that we talk with, and I've, I've said this over the course of our time together, the majority of people that we talk with could be described as agnostics. They, 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 it's not that they don't believe in God, it might not even be that they are actively fighting against God. Though it appears that way in our culture that everybody's fighting against God, I would argue that the vast majority of people are really on the fence. It, it's they, they don't have enough information uh, or perhaps they're not willing to digest the information that they do have. Remember the illustration that we have used many times? You're in a dark room. There's a ray of light shining through the wall on the other side. person says, I'm not going to believe God unless he reveals himself to me. And we would say to that person, well, listen, you can't complain about being in a dark room if you don't try to pursue the little bit of light that you see. So ultimately, we have a responsibility as human beings to pursue the light that God has sh shined upon us. And, of course, we looked a few weeks ago, and we saw that God shines his light in two different ways, one in his word and two in, in, in creation, general revelation and special revelation. But most of the people that we will talk with are what we would define as agnostics. And so what we've been trying to do is to give you just a little bit of information. It's kind of information overload, isn't it? I think we've kind of backed up on these Wednesday nights with a big dump truck full of truth, and we just dump it on your lap, and we say, assimilate it, process it, and get out there and share it. And you go home, and you stare into the darkness, and you think, what did I just hear? You know, I don't know all that I heard, but we're hopefully trying to give you a little bit of information, a few nuggets here and there that will help you and guide you to be more effective in having conversation with drunk Dallas Cowboy fans on airplanes. 
So we're going to look very quickly, before we get into the question of who is Jesus, and we may not finish it, and probably won't uh, tonight, but, but we'll, we'll at least start in that direction. But I want to ask you the question about how do we deal with uncertainty. Some of you have read the book, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. If you haven't, you should. There's a book called The Case for Faith, The Case for Christ. There's a series of those books, but I would encourage you to get it. It is a good read. Lee Strobel, who was a newspaper reporter in Chicago, set out really to prove that Christianity was not true, went on an investigative search. He was an investigative reporter and through his research ultimately concluded that Christianity is true. Same thing with Josh McDowell, by the way. And so the more that you begin as an agnostic to look at the evidence and you begin to weigh up and understand the evidence, the more that if you're going to pursue that little ray of light that you're going to find that it will lead you ultimately to a relationship with Jesus. But you still, even though you have the knowledge and even though you might have the information, you still have to accept it and receive it by faith. So we have said that even atheism is a, 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 a worldview that you accept by faith. You, by faith, have to accept that God doesn't exist, just like by faith you have to accept that he does exist. It's just a matter of what your faith is being placed in. And so Lee Strobel came up with eight different ways or tests to kind of deal with the subject of uncertainty. And I just want to walk you through these in case you have not read the book. And if you have, these will serve as a little refresher for you. But the first one is what we call the intention test. And here's how the intention test goes. The question that the intention test raises is this. Was it the intention of the writers of the Bible to record what actually happened? So did the writers of the Bible set out to write an accurate historical account of what they witnessed and knew to be true? Well, the answer is very simple. The gospel writers state their goal. For example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31, John writes, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right? So John tells us from the very beginning in the uh, beginning of his book that he is writing, or excuse me, at the end of his book rather, that he is writing to tell us who uh, he, Jesus is, how he has witnessed Jesus, all the events that have transpired. Another example that I could give you is found in the book of Acts. Here is Luke as he uh, describes his reason for writing. He says, in this first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach He's talking, of course, about his gospel. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. This is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through uh, 4, through 5, rather. Um, until he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented him alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so I would make this statement to you. 
Some would say, well, I don't believe what the New Testament writers wrote. I don't believe the Bible. And uh, that is, of course, ultimately a matter of faith. But I will say this, what is clear and what is unmistakable is that the New Testament writers believed what they were writing. They firmly believed what they were writing. They are writing in the perspective of an eyewitness. They're writing in a way that there is no mistake as to what they are trying to communicate. Peter says, we will, uh, in, uh, in his epistle, he says, we have set forth to give you um, an account of the things that have transpired among us so that as a light that shines in a dark place, that the day star uh, may, shine, uh, may shine in your hearts. So Peter is, is writing. He said, I'm, gonna, I'm going to ensure that I always give you a reminder of these things and I record these things. For we are not following cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we were his eyewitnesses, where we saw his glory when we were on the holy mountain. And Peter says, so we have the prophetic word more certain or more sure. And so all of the New Testament writers were writing to give us this idea of certainty to give us their intention when they write. Uh, when we look at the New Testament, we don't find outlandish flourishes or convenient false statements. They are all writing with an eye towards accuracy and to write those things with which they have witnessed. Secondly, the ability test. And here's the question the ability test raises. Is it possible that the disciples were able to record the history properly over the 30 years of Jesus' life. I mean, you think about it. That's a long time. And the disciples spent three years with him. Is it possible that they could go back over that period of time and accurately give a recounting and an accounting for the life of Jesus? Well, here's the answer that Strobel uh, concludes. The Jews of the, uh, of the time were a people of oral tradition. Rabbis were able to memorize the entire Old Testament. And so his point is very well made. The Jewish people understood the importance of oral tradition and passing on to future generations the truths of their faith and the truths of the things that were so important to them. And he concludes that the New Testament writers who were in that particular context would have more than been able to record accurately and have the ability to give us an accounting of what they saw uh, because it was so important to them that they would accurately pass on uh, their traditions or their faith or their teachings. It's not a game of telephone. You know the game of telephone? Remember the game, you whisper in somebody's ear over here and they whisper and they whisper and they whisper and by the time you get to the end, what the first person whispered and what the actual message is is so very different. It wasn't that way. It wasn't, I'm going to whisper to you and you whisper to you and you whisper to you. That is not how uh, the, the Jewish people saw the importance of passing on their faith. So even in the context of that culture, it is certainly plausible and most likely that they had the ability to pass on the information. The third test is the character test. And this question is, were the disciples people of character? 
I mean, if you're going to trust somebody's writing, you better trust them as somebody of character. If they're not a person of character, you won't believe what they write. And the answer is, we see no reasonable evidence to suggest that they were anything but people of great integrity. In fact, if you look at what ultimately the disciples uh, came to for their faith, they were willing to die for what they believed in. And you know, and I know, that con men and false prophets and liars do not take their lies or their falsehoods or their untruths to the grave where it'll cost them their own life. Eventually, somebody's going to rat out somebody else. Somebody's going to come clean. Somebody's going to whistleblow. Just had to throw that in there. <laughs> and that's not a political statement. It's just we all know what that is. Somebody's going to say, listen, I heard this, and this is all made up or whatever. And so that's going to come to light. And so is, are, they, are they men of character? Of course. Uh, every indication that we have is that they were. The fourth is the consistency test. And the consistency test asks the question, are the gospel accounts consistent? So if you're going to have a historical record, you want to see that the historical record, and there are four that we have that are called gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, and 1 Corinthians. Just seeing if you're awake. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so you want to see, is there a consistent message or is there some contradiction in the message and what's being told? So if you try to answer the question, you would say, what if the Gospels were all exactly the same? What would you think? If every Gospel was almost word for word, verbatim the same, what would be your conclusion? Yeah, there was collusion. There's another word we're going to throw in there. You know, so, but you would think that there's collusion. You would think that, that somebody copied so-and-so. I really don't know that this is true, but I'm going to go ahead and copy what so-and-so wrote, you know. And, and, but, but when we witness an accident or we witness a crime or we witness an event and we record that event, we all record the event based on our perspective based on our, 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 our background, based on what we want to convey about the event, um, you know, based upon all of those things. And so are we giving different perspectives, it, it, rather in giving different perspectives, are we giving false information? No, we're just giving it from our point of view. We're giving it from our, our perspective. And so when you look at the Gospels, Simon Greenleaf writes, there is enough of a discrepancy to show that there could have been no previous uh, 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 concert among them, and at the same time, such substantial agreement to show that they were all, uh, they were independent narrators of the same great transaction, which is a great way to put it. So there's enough of a difference to say that they didn't get together and say, let's all write this the exact same way, but there's enough consistency in the message to show that they're all writing about the same event and the things that occurred in their time. So it passes, at least as Strobel puts it, the consistency test. And what about the bias test? The bias test says, was there a bias that would have clouded their work? And the answer would be, they did love Jesus very much, of course, but what would the gain be in telling his story? 
So if there was a bias just to tell the story, what would the gain be? What, what was in it for them, right? So I'm going to write this story with a bias to try to paint Jesus in this particular perspective. Even though he's not in this light, I'm going to write it so that he looks better, right? We call that sometimes revisionist history, right? We go back and we rewrite history so that history kind of fits the narrative that we want it to fit. Has anybody heard that? You've heard that. And so sometimes, you know, you, you, you look at your, like, this is revisionist history for guys. Most of, most of the guys that I know were mediocre athletes in high school. But when they tell the story, they were all Americans who were recruited by 14 major colleges and could have signed seven pro contracts, right? It's just the way it works. And so when we look at something, we want to kind of slant a little bias. You ask a little boy about their dad. My dad's greater than your dad. My dad was faster than your dad. My dad's stronger than your dad. You remember that when you were in the, on the playground? Because you want, to, you want to write this narrative or share this narrative with a bias. Well, the disciples loved Jesus, and they certainly wanted to uh, elevate him, but they didn't do it without rationale or without reason or without warrant for who he was because their gain in doing so wasn't personal gain. It was criticism. It was ostracism. It was martyrdom. Now, you're not going to do that if you're making a story up that's going to ultimately cost you. You're going to turn tail and run. And you're going to say, oh, I made it all up. He's not who he said he was, right? You know, and get yourself off the hook. But they were willing to die for it because they believed in what they saw and what they heard. Number six, the cover-up test. And the cover-up test asks the question, did the disciples tell stories about things that would be embarrassing or uncomfortable, or did they cover up these things for their own gain? Okay? So when you look at the Gospels, we see in the Gospels, and here's, here's the way to answer that, when we look in the Gospels, we see and this is, by the way, this, this uh, particular test, for me, is one of the strongest tests to argue for the authenticity of the New Testament. Um, if you're making up a story, you're just making something up, are you going to put things in the story that would be complex, hard to understand, somewhat controversial, uh, if you're making it up? No, you're not going to make it up that way. You're going to make it up so it's real simple and really easy to understand, and there are not difficult concepts or hard truths to grasp. But when you read the New Testament, you read of, first of all, the hard sayings of Jesus. If you want to follow me, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Or Jesus says, make friends with unrighteous mammon. So when it fails you, you'll have friends in heaven. Jesus continually made strong statements that, that were controversial and difficult and hard to understand. Well, if you're writing a narrative, if you're, if you're, if you're trying to, 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 to cover up something, you're not going to add that into that. Uh, look at the things that would have been convenient for them to leave out. I mean, I would have kind of left some of that stuff out. And then look at the last point. The disciples even made themselves to look foolish at times. I mean, you know, if you're going to write a story and try to cover something up and make it look different than it really is, are you going to say that you were stubborn and ignorant 
in the story? That's where oh, you were bored. Are you bored now? Oh, my goodness, I'm in trouble. I better get interesting, Jim. But the point that, that uh, Strobel is making is that you wouldn't put those kinds of things in there. But yet the disciples say, you know, as they write, Thomas didn't believe, or, or Peter stood afar off, or, or uh, um, th- th- they sat around, the, 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 uh, the, went into the, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they were arguing about who's going to be greater. You, know. you wouldn't put those things into the story. You just wouldn't. We don't write about those things. We write about things that make us look good. And so uh, it passes that test. Number seven, and only one more after this, the corroboration test. Uh, do, do the Gospels corroborate with history? And we don't have time to look at this, but the answer is the Gospel accounts corroborate with sources in history outside of the religious realm. Historical texts cor- uh, correlate well with the, the Bible historically. We could go through and look at extra-biblical texts that were extra-biblical writers, and the early church fathers begin to talk about things that transpired and happened um, who would have firsthand knowledge of some of those things based on uh, people who were there. So when, when you look at people like Josephus and then you look at other uh, writers, they begin to corroborate the biblical record. In fact, somebody has argued you can look at the extra biblical sources and from just reading those alone, come to the basic conclusion of what the Gospels ultimately teach. The essence of the, of the, of the person of Christ, his perfection, his, his death on the cross, his, his resurrection, the, the Jewish hatred for him, um, and then his, his atoning work. And then lastly, the adverse witness test. Uh, do we see examples of contemporaries of Jesus complaining that the gospel accounts were just plain wrong? Name, name how many of those, up, the answer's up there, so don't read it. But how many of those do you see? How many contemporary witnesses were complaining that, no, no, we saw this, and, 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 and John wrote it wrong. He, he, he didn't record it in the right way. Or, or we, we saw this, and, 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 and Luke was off base. Luke, Luke's not writing it the way that it happened. No, many, if they could have, would have set out to disprove the gospel, but they didn't. And so you don't find refutations of the historical accuracy of what the biblical writers wrote. You just don't find that in history. What you do find ultimately is refutations of what that means, and that comes later. But you don't find that in the contemporaries of, um, of, the, uh, of the gospel writers. So you have those tests, and as Strobel walks through them, and I just did a very quick look at them, uh, they begin to help us understand that, uh, that, that, that the, the issue of agnosticism is really a matter of faith and it's a matter of choice. Remember a couple of weeks ago I gave you Pascal's wager? Uh, Pascal says that given the possibility that God does exist and assuming an infinite gain or loss associated a rational person should live as though God exists and seek to believe in God. If God does not exist, a person will only have finite loss. Uh, you know, his point is, throw the wager down. If he doesn't exist, you've just lost out on just a little bit of fun, uh, but you've gained a really meaningful life and deep relationships. But if the wager goes the other way and you have gambled that it wasn't true and you live just for yourself 
and you've you just enjoyed life and ignored God, and then at the end of the wager, it, you find out that you wagered wrong, that the Christian message is true, guess what you've lost? Infinite loss. You've lost it all. You've lost your soul. So his argument is, if you're going to put a wager down, why don't you wager in a safe bet? Now, this is not a reason to believe the truth, um, you know, but then the question you know, we, we're not making a wager in our faith. I mean, it's not like, well, I guess I'll throw my chips on that one, you know. Uh, but he, he's just making the argument that we haven't thought it through. So why does God need to be comprehensible? Um, and uh, I'm not going to get in there and, and, and read all that for you, but I just put some scriptures up there that, that you can jot down. Um, just to give you one, David in, uh, said, God's unfathomable intelligence uh, confessing that such knowledge is too wonderful for him. It is so high, I cannot attain it. Psalm 139, verse 6. And, and there's a number of other passages up there. So when, when you, y- y'all writing fast so I can move on? Uh, just take a picture. I remember back in the day when I was a student, you had to actually write down everything the professor said. I had a professor in seminary. His name was Claude Howe. H-O-W-E, he taught Baptist history. We called him affectionately, clean your plow how, because that's what he would do. He would come in and clean your plow, you know, and y'all know what that means. Y'all city people know what that means. It means he was really hard, and he would wear you out, and so he would come into class, and he would stare up at the ceiling, and he would walk around, and he would begin to lecture about Baptist history. He didn't look at a note. He knew it from, from uh, the first century all the way to the present day. And your job was to write everything that came out of his mouth. And you would just start and write and write and write. Well, nowadays, you know, when you put a PowerPoint up, rather than writing it, what do you do? You pull out your phone and take a picture. And even students that I've been able to teach, instead of writing it, they'll say, can you just email me your PowerPoint presentation? <laughs> to which I say let me tell you the story of clean your plow how in <laughs> my days back in, uh, in seminary. So the point is, is that when you talk about agnosticism, it is practically not possible to be 100% agnostic because there's enough information out there. So you cannot say, I don't have enough information. You can't be 100% and say there's not. You have to ignore a ton of evidence to do that. Do we have certainty that our gospel is uh, true and divine? I mean, do we have certainty? I think God has given us a lot of certainty. Can we accept that our God is incomprehensible? Of course we can accept that God is incomprehensible. And we don't know everything there is to know about God, but it doesn't mean that God hasn't revealed himself to us. And then the last thought, many have simply said, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And as C.S. Lewis said, either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worth. These are the only two options and any other claim cannot be made. So you ultimately have to say he was a madman. Uh, C.S. Lewis famously says he was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. You've heard the argument. People don't follow liars to the grave. Lunatics don't set the course of human history. Really, the only conclusion based on the evidence is that Jesus was Lord. So can we know with certainty that Christianity is true? With absolute certainty? Maybe not in the way that we crave that certainty, 
but does the evidence begin to point us in that direction? And of course it does. And so when you conclude that Christianity is in fact true and Christianity is, is believable and, and the weight of evidence is, is in the, is in, in, in the, uh, the corner of, of our faith, then you begin to start to go, okay, so there, there has to be a way to answer the questions that skeptics are asking then. So if Christianity is true, then what about evil? If Christianity is true, then is there really a heaven or is there really a hell? If Christianity is true, then how did we get here? Did we evolve or was there a literal six-day creation? And when did all that happen? If Christianity is true, then, then can I really know with great certainty, um, uh, you know, who Jesus is beyond him being just a man. And, you know, so we begin to wrestle with these questions. And that's what we're going to deal with now. And in 17 minutes, I'm going to answer who is Jesus. But we're just going to tackle this. So I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you, and we're just going to just kind of touch on the first uh, truth together tonight. But I want you to look at Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read a few verses together. In Colossians chapter 1. How many of y'all just to this day to remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians say go eat popcorn in your mind? Do you do that? Or GE Power Company or whatever. Even to this day, even though I can kind of turn there, I always in my mind go eat popcorn, uh, which sounds good. But let's begin Colossians chapter 1, I want to begin reading in verse 13. We're going to read through verse 23, one of the most powerful passages in all the Bible. Now, just if you want to write some, some notes down, I won't give you exact, I'll just give you main chapters. If you really want to see what the Bible says about the person and work of Christ, there are four passages in the New Testament that you need to turn to. This is one, Colossians chapter 1. The other one is John's gospel chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. John chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. The, second, uh, the third one is Philippians chapter 2. Uh, is, is one of the most powerful passages. He emptied himself. It's the great kenosis passage, which means he emptied himself of his, uh, of his deity, and he took on humanity, added humanity, um, and he became the form of a servant. That's Philippians 2. And then the third is Hebrews chapter 1, uh, which is... Uh, very similar to some of the language we're going to see here in Colossians. Is that what I said Hebrews? Did I say Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 1. So we have Hebrews 1, we have Philippians 2, Colossians 1, and John 1. There are other passages, but those are the four uh, theologians would call Christological, which means passages that tell us about Jesus in the New Testament. So if you really want to do a study, dive in on those four passages and begin to digest the, 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 the uh, thought of, uh, of the biblical authors. But here's what Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness or the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love or His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and all things... Uh, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let me walk you through this passage, and again, we'll just touch on maybe the first couple of truths that I want to draw your attention to as we think about how the Apostle Paul describes to us who Jesus is. And so I want to give you a couple of bullet points. We'll start with the first one, and that is Jesus is the Savior, okay? Jesus is the Savior. Now, if you look at verse 13 and 14, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, So what Paul is talking about is he's talking about the work of the cross. He's talking about the atonement. He's talking about our salvation purchased by Christ's expense. We were delivered from darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his son. And so he points to his redemption and the redemption um, which brings forgiveness of sins. Now, just for a moment, I want you to look on the screen and you'll see that this statement alone denies three worldviews that, uh, and there's actually more will come to them, but three worldviews that are very prominent today. Uh, the first one is universalism. And what does universalism teach? Universalism teaches that eventually everyone will be saved. Uh, universalism is essentially what I began our message with tonight. All paths ultimately lead to God. Uh, what matters is not a belief in and trust in and faith in the atonement of Jesus alone, but ultimately uh, everybody is going to be saved. Universally, uh, we're, all, we're all going to experience salvation. Whatever that is, uh, we're going to experience it. And so, um, you know, we're all in. Um, Christians aren't the only ones. W what's the opposite, by the way, of universalism? Exclusivism. It sounds terrible in our culture, doesn't it? You need to be inclusive in our culture. You need to be, uh, you don't need to be exclusive. You need to be inclusive. And so, um, you know, you need to let everybody have their own means. It's, it, what, I'm, what matters to me is that I'm just sincere. Is it possible for somebody to be sincerely wrong? Sure, it's been possible for somebody to be sincerely wrong. I've done things before that I was certain were right, later only to learn that I was sincerely wrong in what I did. And I had people to remind me of that called parents. Uh, but the opposite of universalism would be exclusivism, and that is only those who place their faith in Christ are saved. The second worldview that this idea of Jesus being Savior uh, denies is what we call deism. Deism is simply a way to describe that God is up there and out there, wherever that is, but he does not care about us down here. A, a deist would believe that God exists, 
Um, but when God created the world, essentially God started the world moving like a top. Uh, you know, uh, uh, he spun it, and then he just kind of steps away, and it just kind of does what it wants to on the table, and it's going to wobble and fall down one day, but God is disinterested. He is aloof. Uh, he is, uh, and there's various manifestations of deism, uh, but he is, uh, he's, just, he's just letting it all happen. So he's not interested. He doesn't care. And then thirdly, the viewpoint called fatalism that states that all things are predetermined and all things are inevitable. Uh, we'll get into more of this in a moment in some of the statements that Paul makes uh, that, you know, things are just going to happen the way they are. You know, it doesn't matter what you believe. It's, it's just it, it, the, the, the world is just kind of moving in a direction and you just got to hang on for dear life. And, and uh, you know, now let me ask you this. If, if, if you believe these particular views, is it going to shape the way that you live? Sure it is. If you believe in universalism, that everybody's ultimately going to be saved, then uh, you're just going to live your life as the captain of your own soul, the master of your own fate, the, 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 the driver of your own car, you know, whatever it is. If you believe in deism, it's all riding on you. If you believe in fatalism, what does it matter anyway, right? So live free and what do they say in Vermont? Is it live free and die? Is that what it is? Is that, does anybody know? Or die? Live free or die, not live free and die. I just changed, if you're from Vermont, you're listening to this, I'm sorry that I changed your state motto, but, but the point is, is just, just do what you want to do. Live the way you want to live. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible never teaches that everyone will ultimately be saved. The Bible never teaches that God is an impersonal God who is not actively involved and intimately involved with the affairs of his creation. And the Bible never teaches that this world is out of control, everything's going to end up a certain way, it's like a train going downhill, there's, it, it's gonna, there's going to be a fatal wreck, you know, there are no brakes. The Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, conversely, let's move to the second point. This will be our last for the night. Not only is Jesus the Savior, but Paul says that Jesus is the revealer. And if you read verse 15, here's what he says in verse 15. So in verse 14, he is talking about Jesus as the Redeemer and the one who forgives. In verse 15, he says, He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. What does he mean by that? Well, the word image means as icon. It, it, the idea is it's an exact representation. It's like if you take a piece of or a, 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 some hot wax and you take a, a stamp and you dip it in the wax, what is on that stamp is now in the wax. It, it's, a, it's an exact representation, and that's exactly the word that Paul uses. He is the exact rep representation of the invisible God. The point being that if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus because Jesus is God, okay? And then he says he is the firstborn over all creation. This is not speaking of Jesus being uh, the first one who was born. There were many born before him. It's not speaking of firstborn in the sense of time. He is using this in the sense of preeminence. The word firstborn means the rightful heir, the one who is... Uh, has the, the, uh, the ownership 
of the estate based on the, the, uh, the, uh, the, being the heir of the estate. And so he is the firstborn. He is the preeminent one. So notice that he describes Jesus as being the revealer, the revealer of who? The revealer of God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. And here's what this begins to deal with in some of the worldviews that we find ourselves, some more worldviews. So the statement that he is the image of the invisible God denies mysticism. And mysticism is the belief that direct knowledge and contact with God or whatever ultimate reality is can only be attained through subjective experience. The way you get to know God through the mystic is through some kind of experience. And that's why we find people from the United States and other parts of the world that travel to India, they find some guru, some Hindu guru, they go out and they begin to have some mystical experience and, and uh, they, they begin to try through, through, the, through this subjective experience to be able to determine uh, reality. Um, people are involved in all kinds of meditation. They're involved in, not that this is bad in and of itself, but yoga and, you know, if you do yoga, it's not bad. I'm not telling you're evil. Uh, but, but people get involved in all kinds of mystical experiences so that through these mystical experiences, they might find what ultimate reality is. Well, of course, that's not what Colossians 1.15 says. Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. Paul is saying, you want to know who God is. You want to have an experience with God. Where do you look? You look to the Lord Jesus. That's who he is. Cultism, a religious movement that claims that some relationship to Christianity but denies the eternal deity of the Son of God, the full sufficiency of his atoning work on the cross, and the Bible alone is our authority. So cultism, you know, likes to take bits and pieces of, of, of this. This would be Mormonism is, a, is what we would classify as a cult. It takes portions and bits and pieces of Christianity, uh, but it denies the deity of Christ. That is that he is God. He is the image of the invisible God, his atoning work, which goes back to verses 13 and 14. Um, and the Bible alone is that um, source by which we see exactly who Jesus is. The third one is atheism, the worldview that says there are no God or gods. And do you notice that Paul assumes the existence of God in this statement? He is the image of the invisible God. The God we can't see, the God who exists, Jesus is the image of that God. And then agnosticism, the worldview that says we cannot know whether God exists or gods exist at all. And yet, exactly what does Paul say? Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. You see, when you begin to look at the message of the Bible, the message of the Bible begins to deal with the worldviews that we find all around our culture. Now, the question ultimately comes back to, do you believe what the Bible teaches? Do you believe that Christianity is true? Do you, do you believe that it is knowable, uh, that you can, you can know these things? But yet, when you read the Bible, the biblical worldview begins to paint a very different picture than the worldview that a lot of people live with. A lot of people will say, God exists, but the world's out of control. Uh, there, there's a God out there somewhere, but my God is the world, and I've got to get out and experience it, and, you know, Rocky Mountain High, right? John Denver, and, and I've got to get out in the mountains, and I get in touch through this experience with the trees, and, the, and, and there's a whole other worldview that goes with that, and we'll get into that later. But the point is, is that the, the, the Bible begins to, to speak so clearly to this. Here's the last quote I want you to see. Curtis Vaughn 
who's a professor of New Testament, says the affirmations of the passage were all the more remarkable when we remember that they were written of one who only 30 years earlier had died on a Roman cross. Think about the message of Christianity. 30 years before these words are written, what's happening to Jesus? He's being beaten, scourged, thrown on a cross, uh, nailed to a cross. He dies. He's placed in a tomb. Um, all the tragedy of, quote, tragedy of the cross is in within 30 years. And now Paul is writing and he is saying that he is the image of the invisible God. That, that, that's remarkable that 30 years later somebody would say that. That's not a liar. That's not a fraud. That's not a lunatic. That's not a fabricated story that's continuing to be uh, proffered to the masses that if you believe this, you know, it, it, it'll change your life. Why don't you buy into our, our little story here and see if you can do it? Uh, pe people don't make that kind of stuff up, especially stuff like that that can be verified. Stuff like that that has, within that time frame, eyewitnesses and people that can come to the table and, and, uh, and, and make uh, any lie that has been shared uh, come to light. So we'll get into the rest of this. There's so much more. I wish I could keep going, but it's 929, 9.29, 7.29. Thank you guys for being here. Don't miss next week, okay? Don't miss next week because we're going to continue this. And it gets, as good as it was tonight, it gets better. <laughs> Father, thank you for your presence with us and thank you for what you're teaching us. And Lord, I pray that we'll learn and grow and we'll be ready to defend the hope that is within us with meekness and fear, uh, but we'll do it with power and certainty and authority. Give us opportunities to tell others about Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Sorry.